Radio Mano Papachango. Tangent community. Just on my way to work in Bristol, England. It's rainy stuff, but I'm feeling pretty positive this morning. Uh, yeah, I'm an electrician who has listened to your podcast for many years now and has really enjoyed it. I just wanted to acknowledge you as one of my most influential mentors. We might never meet, but you've been alongside me during a lot of decisions I've made. Our lives are quite different on the out side uh, I've got a young family um, life's pretty pretty regular in lots of ways but also pretty amazing um, chaotic and confusing and yeah um, I just want to let you know that I love and respect you in this community and thank you for helping me navigate my 30s so far big love bye hey chris my name's emily i'm 23 and a while ago i left a post on your Substack about possibly moving to costa rica from a very small farm town in minnesota to go live with a guy i had known for three, three months at the time who i had fallen in love with and i did it and i'm here and i'm so fucking happy i did it is probably the best thing that i could have ever done for myself um, especially at this age. I always knew that I didn't want a traditional lifestyle. I just wanted to live a life that was beautiful. And I've been absolutely blessed with that. Um, I'm having the best time just kind of being here within myself and being able to experience uh, different culture and different language, different foods, different scenery. Uh, the momentum of this country is just so much better than it is in the United States. I don't really know how to describe it quite yet, but I love it and I'm so happy here so far. Um, right before I moved, I actually found out that I'd fallen pregnant and we decided to go through with the pregnancy. We are both very excited. Um, I've always wanted to be a mother. I wasn't planning on having kids until I was like 30, but I'm kind of excited to do it while I'm young and be able to, you know, experience this beautiful place um, through the eyes of a child. Uh, we're excited. It's going to be great. I am also wondering if you have ever had any experience with being sober for a prolonged amount of time, because I have always been very into psychedelics, um, very into drinking, not, you know, too much, but I like to have fun. Um, and now that's come to a full stop and I'm out here in a different country, um, kind of hanging out by myself most of the time, completely fucking sober. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's really great for me. Um, it's been different. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, fuck, I just want a glass of wine. So I'm just wondering if you've ever had experience, um, you know, traveling, while being sober or just being sober in general if you have any advice or experience um with that it'd be cool to hear about that from you anyways thanks for the podcast i don't think i'd do something like this if i hadn't listened to it bye you sweet sweet people 
Pete in Bristol and Emily in Costa Rica and everyone else. Thank you so much for sending me these these little messages, whether they come by voice memo or email or text or however they they get to me. And I try to keep all the doors open. My email is that Chris Ryan at gmail dot com. Uh, you can leave comments on Substack. Uh, where all these podcasts appear. People discuss the podcast there. I also write articles, uh, post videos. For example, um, I'll post a video of this conversation with Tony Bersunas. <clears throat> um, and I'm going to do a book club. Uh, this I've just decided, why not do a book club? That'll be for people uh, who contribute financially on Substack. It's five bucks a month, 50 bucks a year. Um, so some of that stuff has to be, you know, I gotta, gotta give some juice to the people who are pitching in. Uh, so I don't mean to exclude anyone. I would love to just make everything free and leave it at that. But the truth is that when I, when I put out something and kind of tease, you know, you can put a paywall on an article and the first cup, you know, I put the first couple paragraphs and then there's a paywall and it's like, Oh, you want to read the rest? You have to click here and you know, it fucking works. I hate it, but it works. Like every time I do it, 15, 20 people sign up and it's, I mean, that, that's my only income at this point. So, uh, it is somewhat important. Um, but you know me, if you've been listening to this for a while, you know that I've got a <clears throat> conflictive relationship with, uh, with money. So I wish we lived in a world where we didn't need to think about it, but we don't. So we do. And I fucking hate it, but there it is. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess this is the official announcement. I'll, I'll write something as well for people who don't listen to the podcast, but, uh, I'm going to do a book club, you know, casual when I'm feeling it, it's not going to be, you know, absolutely every three weeks we're going to do this or that. Um, but I, I, I got a copy of the unbearable lightness of being, and I want to read that again. And I was thinking, you know, I'll just do one of those, what makes this book great episodes. But then I thought, why not do a book club and let people know I'm reading it. And anyone else who wants to read it can also read it. And then we'll do a zoom call and, and we can all talk about it and see what happens. Now I have no idea how many people are going to sign up, uh, and how many people are going to be available for the zoom call. Um, so that, <sighs> could be unmanageable. I mean, if a hundred people are trying to get into the same zoom call, I guess I'll, I'll do several, but anyway, it's a dry run. We'll see how it works and, uh, we'll take it from there. So if you're listening to this and you want to be involved, read the unbearable lightness of being, I'll set up the meeting, um, probably early February, I guess, give it a few weeks. Um, and we'll talk about it there. And I'll also record the zoom session. So if you can't make it, um, live, you can always listen in and, and see people who listen to the podcast and, and sort of, you know, meet other people in this community that way. <clears throat> okay. Um, Emily, Emily asked about, first of all, congratulations, Emily. Uh, I got that memo, I think in November, so by the time you hear this, you're a few months into it. I hope you're still having a great time and feeling good and loving Costa Rica and loving pregnancy and, and all that. Um, 
That reminds me of another <laughs> tangent upon tangent here. Reminds me of another thing I'm going to be writing. It's going to be a series on Substack. And uh, the theme is, how can I say this? Agreeing with people I disagree with. So finding ideas that I think are ridiculous, but finding the overlap between what I think is true and what those people think is true. So I've done this before on the podcast, just talking, right? Where I've said like, you know, I think Trump's a fucking absolute piece of shit, but I understand why people voted for him. At least some people, um, some people voted for him because they're pieces of shit and they just want to vote for representative government. But I think a lot of people voted for Trump because they look at Washington and say, and they say that place is corrupt. It doesn't represent me. Those are a bunch of fucking shysters and con men. And, um, they're all, you know, being paid off by defense contractors and big pharma and, you know, fucking oil companies. And like this, this whole thing is a charade. So I'm going to vote for this fucking lunatic who's going to go in there and mess it all up because it's not working for me anyway. I get that. So that's an example. So anyway, I'm going to do a series where I look at things and say, okay, I fundamentally disagree with this perspective, but here are ways in which I do agree. And I think that's a really important exercise these days. And I hope my, my intention with the series is that maybe other people will try to develop the same cognitive habit. Because we're so focused on yelling and screaming and everyone else is wrong. And if you don't agree with me, you're a fucking idiot. And, you know, just this this anger and dismissal and sort of very one-dimensional interaction. And largely it's because it's mitigated or, or facilitated by social media. So you're not actually engaging with a nuanced person who's sitting in front of you with thousands of micro expressions passing across their face every minute. And, you know, you're not having this flowing interaction with someone. It's just an idea expressed that you interpret in a certain way and you react in a certain way. And it's, it's just like one shot, one shot, one shot. It's not, it's not dance. It's like a slapping contest or something. Um, so anyway, that's the idea to to find common ground uh, intellectually with ideas that I disagree with. So I'll look at things like, you know, the anti-vax thing. Um, I guess I've already beaten the Trump thing to death. Um, oh, I have a whole list. Should I just go find the list? No, nah, I'll just wing it here. Um, flat earthers. Uh, you know, certain aspects of sort of feminism. I, I mean, it's weird. I used to, I, I used to call myself a feminist, but I feel like feminism has morphed into something that's, that wouldn't want me to be an ally. You know, I'm a fucking cisgender boomer white man. I'm the enemy. So it's kind of hard to be allied with a movement that considers you to be the enemy, but there, there are definitely things about feminism with which I am in deep agreement. And then other things with 
which I feel our paths have diverged. So anyway, ideas like that, veganism, uh, whatever, whatever. And so if you have ideas, if you have some like extreme, um, you know, racism, the, the fucking, you know, people who are scared of immigrants and, and black people and whatever, there are areas of overlap. I mean, no matter what position someone else has taken, there are, there's common ground that you can find. Um, I'm not going to talk about like, well, here are the things that Hitler got right. I don't want to get myself totally canceled. Um, but <laughs> short of that, maybe I'll do, here are the things that, you know, Mao Zedong got right. I'll, I'll just, you know, step it back a bit from Hitler. Um, okay. So I've talked about the book club. Oh, oh, I know why I was reminded of that because Emily's pregnant. That's why. And I sent this list to, to some friends and one of the friends said, ah, oh, I think it would be really interesting if you talked about things that are very personal and vulnerable for you. And one of them would be like, I've never wanted to have kids, but hell yeah, I get it. I definitely get it. Um, the beauty of the experience, the uniqueness of that experience, the incredible poignancy of looking at a, a human being and seeing yourself in them. I mean, I have that experience with my parents, right? Like look at my parents and like, damn, like, or, or I, I do a certain tick with my mouth and I realize that I look just like my dad who did that exact same tick, you know? So, so that mirroring, I've had the experience with my parents, but I've never had it with a kid. And then of course, if you're really lucky and that child comes out of a partnership with someone that you deeply love and you continue to love and you look at that child and you see this person that you're sharing your life with reflected in this child. Holy fuck, what an experience that must be. So just because I've taken the path I have doesn't mean I don't see the value in many other paths. And, you know, that could be about the course of our lives. That could be about an idea that seems on the surface to be absurd. Flat earthers, I'm talking to you. Um, it could be all sorts of places. So I think this exercise in, in seeking common ground is well worth thinking about. All right. This episode, Tony Brasunas, as I mentioned, he wrote a book called Red, White and Blind. It's his second book, his first book, I may be forgetting, I may be, I think it's double happiness. I, I fuck, I forget. Um, I did this episode with him a few weeks ago and he asked me to hold release until early January because his book, Red, White and Blind, uh, wasn't coming out until I think the 7th or so of January. So it's out now. So if you enjoy this conversation, you like the way Tony thinks, uh, look for it. Red, White and Blind. It's about, Largely about what I was just talking about, about how the United States is sort of splintered into these different groups that can't find each other, can't find common ground with each other, um, how that's happened uh, and, and what might be done to address it. I really enjoyed this conversation. 
with Tony. Unfortunately, we had it through the internet. Uh, we were gonna meet at his place in Sebastopol. We set this up a long time ago. Um, back when I was in the van over the summer and the plan was after the workshop up in Montana, we were going to cycle down along the West coast and then we we're going to stop in Sebastopol and park in Tony's backyard and, and, you know, do this in person. But of course I got the dreaded COVID and, and then whatever the fuck I had after that, that knocked me on my ass and we just sort of canceled everything and, um, you know, went somewhere to recover. Uh, so we missed out on that, but, Still had a really good conversation with Tony, and it does allow me to have the video, which, as I mentioned earlier, I will post, uh, and I'll, I'll send the link out to people who support the podcast through Substack. Now, lastly, to address Emily's question about being sober. Sober. Sober is a word that feels... There's a weird quality to the word sober for me. Like I'm clean and sober. It, there's like a, a self-congratulatory mm, kind of uh, assumed subtle dig at any kind of altered consciousness that I have always kind of resented um, and I, I never really thought about it or said it out loud until just now, but there's something about the word sober. Like, okay, here's the thing. I haven't had any alcohol since late August when we came back from Greece. I, th I think actually I had like a mezcal cocktail in Montana, um, and then I immediately like collapsed into night sweats and I don't, I don't blame it on the cocktail. But, uh, so when I say I haven't had a drink there, I think I did have this one cocktail that a beautiful, lovely woman made for me in Montana and I did not have the heart to say no. So I drank it and then, um, but that's all I've had, um, since coming back from this trip. Because, you know, I noticed I was drinking every day. I was drinking and not a lot, but I, you know, a couple glasses of wine, a beer, you know, blah, 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 dinner. You know, you're in Spain, you're in Greece. Wine is part of the thing. Georgia is a huge wine country. Um, and you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So I was drinking a lot of wine and I just noticed like I'm spending a lot of fucking money on wine and I'm every night, you know, a bottle or two sharing, of course, with other people. But still, I'm having three, four drinks a night for sure. And seven days a week, you know, 30 days a month. And so I thought, well, the problem is I've thought a couple times I want to take a week off. And I would go a day or two and then I'd be like, ah, fuck it. I really want a beer. I'm hot. And it's, there's this cool little pub right here. And, you know, I'm looking at the Acropolis. I'm going to have a fucking beer and then I'm going to have a glass. So what I noticed was I was making decisions and not following through on them. And it wasn't, now maybe some people listening to this will say, oh yeah, you have a drinking problem. Nah, I don't know. I don't think I had a drinking problem, but I do think that I was feeling disempowered 
by the fact that I was deciding to do something and then not doing it. And I think, you know, that's kind of like placebo effect psychologically. It may not matter in a material sense, but I think it matters in terms of your self-perception. So it happens. And and I mean, let's face it, it happens a lot in my life. You know, I decide I'm going to do 100 pushups a day and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'll do 100 pushups for three days and then I'll forget on the fourth day. And then I'll remember on the fifth day, but I don't feel like doing it. And and then it's over and I forget all about it and it's gone. Right. That happens all the time. And each time that happens, you know, it does wear down, I think, a little bit of your sense of if I decide to do something, I can do it-ness. Um, but then there are other things that I decide to do, and I do do it. I decided I was going to record this podcast intro this morning, and here I am doing it. Um, so there are things that reinforce it, but I feel like it's an account that you pay into when you follow through and you draw out of when you don't follow through. And if there are too many you know, drawing out and not enough paying in, then the account starts to run down to zero. And when that account runs to zero, you have a problem. And I don't think it's a, in my case, it's not a problem with drinking per se or with not doing enough push-ups per se. It's a problem with um, the balance between what I decide to do and what I do isn't, in a healthy place. I was talking with someone about this the other night and, and the way I described it was I said, for me, I feel like substances are like a dog and a good dog, a dog I love, a dog that, you know, I, I enjoy being with, but the dog needs to know who's the boss and it's not the dog. Right. Like to have a healthy relationship with a dog, your dog needs to know you're the alpha in this pack and he or she is following you and protected by you. And that's the way dogs are. A dog who doesn't know who's in charge starts to think he or she is in charge. And that's when you've got a dog tearing up your apartment and shitting in your bed. So the dog, you know, people, people get this all fucked up now because our relationship with power is weird. We're, we're in a place where we consider power to be negative. Power is a bad thing. And anyone who exercises power is a hierarchical asshole, corrupt, blah, blah, blah. But then we end up with these power vacuums. And what happens with power vacuums is it invites people who don't know how to exercise power responsibly. So power isn't the problem. The problem is when people who don't know what to do with power end up with it. So it's the same thing with animals. It's like dog needs to know you're the fucking boss and you're not doing the dog any favors by not exerting that control and that authority. In fact, you're, the dog gets worried and freaked out and like, what's going on around here? Who's taking care of shit? So anyway, that's one of the things I'll probably talk about in that series is this this idea that power is not wrong or bad per se. Power exists and we're not doing anyone any favors by pretending it doesn't.
why the fuck am I talking about power? Oh, the, yeah, power over self, right? So I haven't had a drink for three or four months or whatever it is, but it's not because I'm, I think I have a problem or I need to, you know, it's an all or nothing thing or whatever. I, I don't feel that. I feel like a part of it is that the doctor said, Hey, your liver's kind of fucked up. You should take a break. And that made it easy. Um, but assuming that I am supposed to get these liver tests sometime in the next month or two to make sure everything's cool, assuming it is cool and the doctor's like, okay, you can drink again, just, you know, moderation. And I probably will, but it's interesting because I don't feel I, when I was trying to not drink and failing, it felt like a big deal. But now it doesn't feel like a big deal at all. It's like, I don't really give a shit. And one thing that's made it really easy is I found that there people have figured out how to make non-alcoholic beer that tastes like beer. So I realized that what I really like was the taste of beer. I didn't like the buzz. I, I don't miss the alcohol. So the fact that I can have a an IPA that tastes like an IPA, I'm like, I'm good. I don't need the rest of it. I don't even miss it, honestly. Um, but wine is a different story. And I, I think if I were living in Spain, it would be a lot harder not to drink uh, wine with food just because it's everywhere in the culture, you know, and it's so good. So... There's that. But I guess what I guess my point is that I realized that my relationship with alcohol is primarily about taste. It's not about alcohol. I don't really like the buzz of alcohol. And every time I've taken psychedelics and I've been around people who are drunk, they just look like fucking monsters. They're just like slurry and they move weird and their faces are weird and I really, you know, get this impression of like, my God, alcohol is definitely, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not something that, that sharpens your mind or your perception. It's all total the opposite, totally the opposite. Um, so anyway, those are my thoughts about being sober. It's kind of weird because I, I've, you know, as a young guy, when you're sort of looking around for, you know, what identities uh, attract you as a young guy. For me, it was a kind of bohemian, um, not Hunter S. Thompson. Cause even when I was young, I thought Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson was kind of ridiculous and, and a caricature of, of himself. Maybe Henry Miller, if you've read, uh, any of his works, um, uh, sort of an adventurer of, of consciousness and of sexuality and of food and of the world, you know, that was my thing, right? I'm going to go out and, and experience this as deeply as I can and, and a sort of anti-materialist, anti-ambition in terms of conventional values, but wanting to have as deep an experience of life as I could within the parameters of, of what attracted me. So, um, definitely psychedelics were part of that. And so when I think of being sober, it kind of, it rings of a renunciation of a bohemian libertine 
perspective, which has been my perspective, um, through most of my life. I went to a party the other night. I think it was actually a New Year's Eve party here in Crestone. And I found myself in conversation with this guy who had just become a Buddhist monk, which I guess is a, you know, like getting your brown belt or something in Buddhism. And, uh, he's a nice guy. Uh, and I enjoyed talking to him, but he, he was, you know, he's young. Everybody's young as far as I'm concerned these days. Um, he's probably 35 or something. And he was very, uh, sure of himself. And, um, and like an idiot, I just spoke freely and I said something about, you know, yeah, you know, I, I really respect Buddhism, but the problem I've always had wrapping my head around it is this sort of resistance to pleasure. Um, and, you know, and every time I've gone to a Buddhist retreat or the Vipassana 10 day thing I did or whatever, there's all this stuff about how, you know, pleasure is is dangerous because it draws you in and and you need it and and it puts you in this um negative uh clingy relationship with something because once you've had it you just want more and more and more and i've always felt like that's not me i don't i don't know why where does that assumption come from right like i i love psychedelics but i don't want to fucking trip every day even when i was 22 i wasn't tripping every week or even every month, most of the time, um, you know, and, and a lot of pleasures are self-regulating, like, you know, orgasm is one of the greatest pleasures there is, but you, you don't want to just come and come and come and come and come and, you know, I mean, you, you got to take a fucking break and go do something else or food, you know, you eat food, it's delicious, you enjoy it, but then you get full and you don't eat for a while, you know? Anyway, so I, I said to the, this guy said like, yeah, but you know, you know, could you go five years without having sex? And I was like, I, I could, but why would I? I mean, I could be dead in five years. Why would I? And he said, well, see, and you need it. I was like, no, that doesn't mean I need it. I said, no, it's, it's like you're asking me to not look at sunsets ever again. Like just to prove I don't need to look at sunsets. Like that seems to me to be, that's a ridiculous, I didn't say ridiculous, but that's a, that's not a healthy way to approach life. I think this presumption that enjoyment necessarily leads to an abusive, unhealthy outcome is a very Victorian fucking, um, puritanical assumption that's baked into American culture and British culture, probably German culture too, but certainly not Mediterranean cultures. Um, and that's like my fundamental problem with America. And it's something I think Emily was pointing out when she said, that being in Costa Rica is just like so fucking different and she can't even put it into words. I experienced that as well. It's I, for me, you know, what's the slogan of Costa Rica? Pura vida, 
pure life. And when somebody says pura vida and they say it every fucking day, they say it to say hello, they say it to say goodbye, they say it to say okay and yeah, cool, whatever. Um, what they mean by it is like life, man. Isn't it great? Life. This is the life. We got mangoes on the trees. We got oceans on two sides. We got beautiful jungles. We got mountains. We got shorelines. We got beautiful women, beautiful men. Everything's fucking great. Let's celebrate it and enjoy it. Pura vida. That's not the slogan in America. <laughs> what the fuck is the slogan in America? I don't know. But, but weird cultures create really good art. I mean, I don't know any amazing Costa Rican musicians. I'm sure there are many playing on the beach by the fire, but I'm about to play you a fucking blues genius by the name of Christone Kingfish Ingram. And uh, this guy could only have come from America. I think he's from Mississippi. He could only have come from this weird ass country that mixes together all kinds of abuse and segregation and misunderstanding and hidden attraction and shame and twisted fucking violent history. And still somehow all that stuff comes together and it created the blues and it created musical genius like no other country has ever produced. Plus, I think it's really cool that this guy's name is Chris Stone because I've been joking. People call me Chris Stone, living in Chris Stone now. And I've been joking that I'm going to become mayor and change the name of the town to Chris Stone. And then here's this dude who's actually named Chris Stone. The song is called Been Here Before. And uh, it's about being strangely wise as a child, being an old soul. Chris Stone, Kingfish Ingram, been here before. And then the conversation is with Tony Brasunas. And the book is Red, White, and Blind. Thank you for putting up with me, sending out lots of love to everybody. And uh, thank you, Pete and Emily. Hope you're both doing well. Hope to hear from some more of you. Send me your audio clips. Try to keep them under a minute. Record them on your phone. Send them to me at thatchrisryan at gmail.com. Thanks. Bye. Some days I feel so different It's like I don't fit in Some kids like the greatest hits But I dig guitar slim Some days I wake up grateful Some days I'm not so sure I can still hear Grandma saying, Child, you've been here before.
don't know where I came from or how I got this way. Mama saying the sky lit up with lightning on my birthday. I've always been different. There's one thing that's for sure. I can still hear grandma saying, child, you've been here before. Looking back, I wonder about all the things I've done. No one seems to be sure where I came from I could still hear grandma praying and she'd be talking to the Lord she said child if I know one thing you've been here before I can't even find no tracks I don't have no proof How I made it back People always tell me Boy, you know you've got a no soul I can still hear grandma singing Child, you've been here before I might have been a rooster I might have been a goat I might have been the king of the jungle A long, long time ago All I know is there's some blessings Following me everywhere I go I can still hear Grandma saying Child, you've been here before One day down the road 
When I get to heaven's door I hope I hear grandma singing Kingfish, you've been here before So welcome, man. I was hoping that we would be able to do this in your in your. What do you have an orchard or something in uh, Sebastopol? Yeah, we got a bunch of apple trees back here. We got a little pond with some fish in there and stuff. I thought it'd be cool when you were driving down driving down the coast, come by and swing by and hang out. But uh, we'll do that next time. Yeah, yeah. I I got the the dreaded COVID and it totally fucked up our van trip this year. Okay. Uh, yeah, and we were basically were like. You know, we we pretty much canceled everything up in the Northwest. We visited a couple friends and then we're just like, head to the desert. It's too cold. And, you know, um, yeah, my mistake was I didn't take it seriously enough. You know, I had it for a few days and it was like, okay, this sucks, but it's no big deal. And we're in the van. And then I taught a, a workshop and I thought I was recovered, but having 20 people you know, and trying to being the center of attention and just that it was wonderful. They're great people. It was a wonderful experience, but somehow that just drained, you know, that eighth of a tank that I had. Uh, and I went, I, I was just, man, it got pretty bad. So anyway, anyone listening to this who gets COVID just chill the fuck out is my advice. Early treatment they say is the, is the, is the key. So whether you're a, ivermectin person or not an ivermectin person whatever you want to do that's what i've heard and that's what we've done so we've done early treatment we all got it me my wife my son we were down for the count but that was uh i got delta so when was that that was like uh the end of 2021 right Mm. maybe i'm off by a year (laughs) yeah yeah it's hard to keep track i mean i i i avoided it i was traveling around the world all over. I was going through airports and, you know, sitting in taxis and shuttle buses. And <clears throat> I was in Asia and then Africa and then Europe. And I didn't, I avoided it. And I thought actually it got, I thought I had it and was asymptomatic. So of course I was like, yeah, I got a fucking immune system that'll kick your ass, you know? And because my girlfriend had it and I was sharing a place with her and, you know, bringing her food and hanging out and sleeping in the same bed. And then I never got it. So I was like, well, I guess I'm just Superman. And uh, then I got back to L.A. and I went to a medical conference and fucking got me at the medical conference. Oh, wow. like, what? <laughs> like, come on, man. Yeah. Anyway, let's enough about me. Let's talk about me. Uh, you're uh, an author, two-time author now. How's that feel? Yeah, it feels good. I mean, this, this, uh, it's funny when I finished Double Happiness, I, I don't know if I actually promised myself I would never write another book. I, I may have, or at least I told myself, don't ever do that. Don't do that again for a long time. It just, right. 
it just takes you down in a sense. It's just, it takes so much. It takes everything you've got to get through, get over the, the mountain of finishing a book. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely satisfying. And, and I realized I was going to write another book right around 2015, 2016 when I had the experience of, um, the censorship at Huffington Post. And so, yeah, started writing Red, White, and Blind in 2019, actually, uh, before COVID, before all of that stuff. And, and I was like, yeah, I got to write about censorship and disinformation, all the stuff that's going on in the media. And then um, the whole pandemic unfolded. And wow, the book became much, in a certain sense, it became easier to write because there were so many more instances of just manipulation in the media and, and deception, distortion. Another sense it got harder to write because it was it was hard to finish it because every couple months it felt like there was another story that I absolutely needed to get in the book and so it took it took quite a bit but um but yeah no it's I'm really excited for people to read it can't wait for people to to get it in their hands should be out uh, the first week of January so we're uh, we're there uh, I've also published two books and after both of them I've been like. Never again. I feel like it's kind of like having a baby. Like I imagine women after they have a baby, they're like, fuck that. Never again. But then you forget all the agony and you remember the good parts. Yeah. I mean, evidently for women and I, you know, I can't say personally, I'd have to have my wife on here to comment on it personally, but there is some genetic or biological thing that kicks in and actually blocks memories of the pain of childbirth um, i think because otherwise women would never have a second child maybe not even a first child so yeah there's something benign going on there and maybe it's the same for writers i don't know yeah <laughs> yeah i read a thing a few months ago a line you know how sometimes you'll just read a quote and it sticks with you and it keeps coming up over and over in different sort of it's like a prism to help you understand different situations this line was uh nostalgia is memory without the detail. Ah. I feel like that applies to so much, right? Yeah. You know, we remember things, we leave out. I mean, I think about, you know, if I think about Thailand, I'm thinking about great food and, you know, warm and swimming on the beach. I totally forget about the sand flies. <laughs> I, you know, I forget about the the stuff in the water, the little uh, jellyfish that are stinging me when I swim in the water. You know, you just forget about all the little irritations, the mosquitoes and the bullshit. But you just, re you know, remember without all that detail. It sort of gets into a philosophical question, right? This sort of, sort of age old question of is life, you know, more pleasure than pain, right? Is it is life overall better are the good parts better than the bad parts? And I think there's all kinds of things where, where go both ways. I mean, there's ways in which, um, I, I mean, I heard something where um, like the mind registers negative comments seven times more um, than positive comments. Mm. So you actually need to get seven compliments for every insult to feel sort of like you're on an even keel, right. which is really unfortunate for, for human spirit, right? So it would be better if it was reversed, right? Where you could just sort of hear seven insults and get one compliment and just be right on your way. But that's not how we work. So it is interesting that the memory, yeah, it's true. Memory somehow blocks out some of the bad stuff so that we want to keep going, I guess. I heard another quote about nostalgia that it's a, it's a longing for things that never were. Hmm. Yeah. I resist that. I mean, I, I think that, you know, a lot of the work that I've done, the, the books that I've written are about prehistory. And I think there's a bias 
you know, a lot of the way people sort of uh, shoot from the hip when they hear some of my arguments is, oh, yeah, people have always been saying it was better before. You know, every generation says, oh, the golden age, the lost uh, time of, you know, where everything was wonderful. And the thing is, any kind of nuanced discussion of prehistory is never saying everything was wonderful. Uh, you know, there were serious problems. But I think that there is an argument to be made, and, and I've made it ad, ad nauseum, some would say, that there is a natural context for a species. And just like dogs want to live like wolves, because they are wolves on some level, we are most comfortable uh, in a hunter-gatherer context because that's where we came from. That's the environment that shaped us as a species. And so looking into a campfire is deeply relaxing for human beings because our ancestors have been doing that for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, right? Um, and yeah. so there is a trajectory and there is a context in which things are most appropriate. I'm going off on a rant here. That's why this podcast is called Tangentially Speaking, because I, I can't keep a fucking thread going. But I, I, I do think this whole nostalgia, you know, at least when it's used against me for a time that never existed, ah, I, that time did exist. It still does exist. There's a reason hunter-gatherers aren't clamoring to become farmers, and farmers, in fact, often wander off and try to become hunter-gatherers. There's a, you know, there's there's actual data about this. But anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. What you were in China for how long? So I was I was there. The first time I went was ninety uh, was for a year and a few months uh, in the late nineties. Sort of dates myself. Um, that was right when I was coming out of college, and um, I went and taught English for a year, and then just sort of set off on my own backpacking through the country. And um, yeah, totally changed my life, transformed how I view. I mean, I called the book Double Happiness because I first of all because it's a famous Chinese phrase and has lots of different context and texture to it, but also because um, I discovered a different kind of happiness that I had never really known existed, and so it really changed my life. And what describe so I wrote the that? Book to try to share that with others, right? But, what what was that happiness? And, and and dig into the nuance of the of the phrase a little bit, please. Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously, it's a it's a book. I wrote a book, so I'll try to condense it. But um, so double happiness in, in, in Chinese, it's, it's a, it's a character that's made from taking two of the character for happiness and sort of smashing them together. And then you have this, it's an actual word, double happiness, sort of meaning the union of happiness. And it's used a lot around weddings, sort of, it's, it has a lot of meaning around like, you know, the joining of things brings happiness and stuff like that. So you'll see double happiness a lot around weddings. You'll also see it. It's like it's a it's a famous enough character that it's like parts of brands of major companies and stuff like that. But um, the reason that I chose that that title for the book, um, and there is a moment in the book where I I'm, I sing at a wedding, and it's this ridiculous scenario where I'm sort of this like animal on a stage. I'm an awful singer, but I they want me to sing at this wedding, something like that. Um, but no, I wrote the book because as I went off into the hinterlands and sort of everything was stripped away and all of my sort of preconceptions of who I was were no longer meaningful. No one had any expectation of who I was. Um, also, I was 
had to communicate in a different language, which was difficult to learn, but I was able to pick it up and start communicating with people. And I'm traveling out in the middle of nowhere. And I discover this other happiness to try to put into words. It's, it's, it's basically realizing the beauty and perfection of what already is. So we have the one happiness, which is our desires fulfilled, right? And that is a real happiness to long for something, to dream for it, to understand what, to have a dream and to push for it. That is a real happiness. And there's no reason to, to not hold that in high regard, but there's another happiness that I found is more prevalent in China than it is that I experienced it in the United States in um, people experiencing a contentment or a awareness and a pleasure in what already is. Mm. So given that cultural difference, do you think that yearning, that ambition for progress to to make things better to constantly be improving things do you think that that's a cultural aspect of particularly american um consciousness or do you think that that's an innate human thing i think it's some of each i think a lot of these things are innate um Things, but you know that the, the story about the the Native American and the two wolves, and you know you feed which one you want to 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 thrive. It's sort of that. I think these things are there, sort of latent in human nature, in the same sense that we're we're both competitive and cooperative. And right, mm. if you if you just think we're competitive, you'll lose sight of the cooperative side of human nature. If you just think we're cooperative, you'll lose sight of the competitive side. Right. I think it's like that. I mean, I, th- I think we we are both driven to be more than we are, and to get more, and to compete, and to to get to to go for more, but we're also just as much. And I think this is what so many of the poets and the philosophers and the artists are, are trying to tell us is that there's more here. There's, there's unity in addition to division, right? There's, there's this sort of ineffable joy and awareness of existence that sort of is a background and sort of pre-exists all of the craziness that we go through in life, um, which is legitimate too, right? There's the hierarchy of needs and we have to sort of achieve them and things like that. But, but yeah. And, and so I think it is cultural to an extent, which ones we emphasize, mm. which things we tell our kids, even not through words, but through how we live, that we teach our children to how to be a human being, really what it means to be alive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and travel is, invaluable in that just just getting in that situation where things that you know you you can't see things until you change the backdrop there's so many things that just blend in and they're invisible until you place yourself in some totally alien environment and then suddenly you're noticing things that have been there all along but you never notice them yeah, yeah, traveling is amazing. I I've never been to China. I've spent a lot of time in Asia, but um China never really attracted me. It was always like a huge hassle to go there. Uh, you know, and um it just the, the Chinese culture just sort of seemed brutal and kind of gross in in a lot of ways like in terms of like what they eat and and it's very urban and, you know, it just, I don't know. It just never appealed to me. I would like go to Nepal 10 times before I would go to China, but maybe I'm just. Well, yeah, so read my book, uh, read Double Happiness. I mean, there's an element 
of what you're saying that is is sort of a media perception of China. Um, mm. Not to say that it isn't true. I mean, China is an urban culture in some ways. There's huge, huge cities, like cities you've never heard of with 5 million people and things right. like that. Um, but no, it's a vast country with just beautiful scenery and mountains and tiny and villages far flung. And there, there's Muslim areas, Tibetan areas. There's the Mongolian areas. I mean, it's really three countries in a way. You have sort of the coast, which is really the sort of modern China that everybody thinks about the big cities. Uh, and now it's way more modern even than it was the last time I was there. Last time I was there was in 2013. Um, but then you have this sort of middle China, which is sort of more farming, and there's still big cities, but it's much more sort of a rolling farmland. I mean, I'm hmm. painting with a really broad brush. It's a diverse country. It's a huge country. Yeah. And when you get out to the West, it's really like there's not a ton of people, really. And it's these huge areas, huge mountains, tall plateaus, deserts, and it's just there's there's more, you know, to explore than you can you can imagine. So, What do you think about what's happening now with the, the riots? Is this as... Um unusual and and potentially pivotal uh a moment as a lot of commentators are suggesting yeah so we can sort of jump off into a little bit the political stuff and and how red white and blind came about at this point i mean i when i wrote double happiness i it's funny like even in double happiness there's there's very few passages that really touch on politics i didn't really focus on it too much i had a fairly I think, naive perception of the media and of the American government and the Chinese government to some extent. Um, I finished that and I came back to the United States. And that's when I started really paying attention to the media. I went back to China. I was there in 2001 is when it was, when the uh, spy plane went down. I don't know if you remember this incident, but there was this American spy plane that went down over Hainan Island, Island, which is this island right off the coast of China that's a Chinese island. And it was this big kerfuffle, and, you know, the Chinese said it was, why are you spying on us? And the Americans were like, why did you shoot down our plane? And they're like, we didn't shoot it down, but we could have and should have if we wanted to. And, you know, it went back and forth. And I was there, and I, this is a chapter in Red, White, and Blind. I was there, and it was the first time I really noticed I was able to go into a little Internet cafe because the Internet was a thing in 2001. It wasn't a big thing, but it was a thing for sure. And I could read um, the New York Times or CNN online. And then I could go and, and just sort of go to a little newsstand and buy a Chinese newspaper with my dictionary. I could read through the newspaper. And and it was just a completely different story. And that was part mm-hmm. of my awakening about media distortion and media. And that was the beginning of it all, realizing the level of distortion. And at that time, I was still in this mentality that the Chinese media is heavily propagandized and distorted and the American media is truthful. But I started to see there were some cracks in that. And then I came back to San Francisco and, and I can get into the whole story of, of my, the next 10 years of my life that led to red, white, and blind. But to get to your question. Um, yeah. So I think China is an amazing country and it's a beautiful place and we want nothing to do with their government system or their media system. I mean, it's, 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 it's really bad. Um, it, they, they never went through uh, the enlightenment and we can get into that. They never went through this revolution of the individual and a notion of individual rights that that's a, that's a powerful and important thing. It's it's the the sort of underlying philosophy is Confucianism and to some extent Taoism and Buddhism and and that those are ba- that that's basically like the society stability of the society is more important than freedom of the individual. Um, and those things are shifting, but that still is is fairly prevalent. Um, it's a really interesting conversation to get into. So yeah, I mean, with the way China handled COVID and the way that what's going on there now, I'm. 
I've been horrified. I mean, and I was horrified to the extent that, you know, some of the media narrative in this country went, I mean, I've had people in my family that were like, oh, I think kind of China got it right. You know, people were saying that back in like 2000, like, you know, what China was doing was essentially like authoritarianism on steroids. And, and it did set a trend around the, around the world to some extent, like where Australia mm-hmm. went and even places like Italy. Um, no, I think that's that's horrifying to me, and and absolutely we should oppose it, and we should insist on uh, individual freedoms, freedom of speech, freedoms of, you know, one one thing we don't have in our constitution, I wish we did, and they have it, I think, in the Danish constitution, a few others, is uh, in addition to freedom of speech, freedom of press, religion, freedom of movement. Um, it's not actually declared in the U.S. Constitution, so the idea that you could be locked down. While never having happened ever in history, the quarantines in the Middle Ages were quarantines of sick people. We've never locked down healthy people. That's never been done. And that there should be a constitutional amendment or something passed that, you know, you were just saying how important travel is. I mean, the ability to travel is a fundamental human right, the ability to move around. And um, it's horrifying in places that don't have it, like here and like China. You know, they, there's this possibility that they can presume to tell you you can't leave your house. Yeah. To push back a little bit on that, there are places where you can't travel without inoculations, right? Yeah. You need your yellow fever card, you know, you need your uh, dengue card or whatever it is. Um, yeah, that question of, of, of travel and freedom of movement is interesting. Um, you know, COVID, in some ways, I feel like even though it's been so disruptive and and difficult and led to all sorts of problems and including death for millions of people, uh, it feels like it was kind of an, a practice run, right? If it had been Ebola, mm-hmm. um, it would have been a lot different. Uh, you know, these questions that we're almost able to look at as theoretical philosophical questions at this point, like, is the right to movement an absolute human right or not uh, with something like Ebola that would uh, take on a a different hue. I think I just read yesterday that uh, as the permafrost melts in the Arctic, all sorts of viruses and and bacteria are being released uh, that have been preserved in the ice for tens of thousands of years, many of them infectious so we may be in t- in for like wave after wave after wave of this stuff. Uh, well, certainly, and and yeah, and certainly the news will always have the next thing to terrify us. That's what that's sure. what we're good at. It's, here's the next thing to be scared of. Oh, you're not scared of that anymore. Here's something to be scared about. <laughs> exactly. Um, that will always be there. Yeah. That's not under threat. Um, no, that I, I mean, we could get into it. Yeah, I think the freedom of movement and, you know, I mean, some of the models that, that came out, you know, Ferguson in, in the UK, I mean, he just absolutely based on no science came up with this model that, you know, if 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 you do, if, if we do what Sweden does, you know, if Sweden does what they're going to do, 10 million people are going to die, 20 million people are going to die. If we don't do this in the, in the UK, 30 million people are going to die. And those models are way off. And absolutely battered and destroyed a lot of cult, a lot of uh, people's livelihood, and absolutely got it wrong, got it way wrong. And you look back, and they had no science they based it on. They based it on some strange desire to, you know. I mean, I think I think the thing to really think about is when you have, you know, governments want more power. That's what they want. They want more power generally. And so if you look at 
the ability to say, oh, here's a, here's a reason we can take more power. We can, let's try locking people down, see if that works, see if they'll get away with that. And there's stuff that's come out, you know, in, in, in France and in England, stuff like, oh, we could never get away with what they did in China. And then they tried in Italy and they're like, oh, look, they got away with it. Maybe we can do this. And then you look at Sweden and, and what they said was going to happen didn't happen. 10 million people didn't die. They ended up having, you know, roughly the same level of casualties as other countries in Europe. So, yeah, I mean, we could get into it. I, I think it's I think it's pretty terrifying, to be honest, how close uh, you can get to that. Yeah, if 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 the disease is Ebola, then it's maybe it's a different conversation. Um, but, you know, every virus will have its own natural evolution and, and viruses will tend to evolve to be more infectious and less deadly because if they're deadly, they kill the host and they stop spreading. So then that's what's happened with COVID is it becomes uh, more infectious and less deadly. Um, I'm not saying it's good. I, you know, one of the things I do in, in, in red, white and blind is um, I, I open the book with what I call nonpartisan stories. Cause I don't want this book to be seen as like, this is the Democrat view of censorship and misinformation, or this is the Republican view of, you know, because it's a much deeper issue than that. And so the first story I open with is Epstein and uh, and the Jeffrey Epstein story and how, you know, just the, the worst thing you can imagine, right? I mean, basically for a quarter of a century, this pedophilia rape ring is abducting girls and abusing them by the hundreds, probably by the thousands, and, and gets away with it for 25 years. I mean, it's just absolutely abhorrent. It wasn't because somebody was a Democrat or Republican. It's a much deeper issue. The second one I get, second issue I get into is the origin of the virus, right? And like why, and I think this is a nonpartisan issue. I, I've had a little bit of pushback on this, but I don't think so. I mean, it, why were we not able to discuss in the media the origin of the virus? You know, f- for the entire first year and a half, two years, you were unable to actually say maybe this came out of that lab that's just down the street from the wet market. And every, I mean, I looked at every news article, you know, for, for a year, it was just, you can't even say it. That's a wild, crazy conspiracy theory. That's a racist theory. I mean, everything. Now it's, you know, it's, we'll never know for certain, maybe it's 99% sure it came out of the lab. I mean, there's almost no, you know, even to say it's 50-50 though, is still, you know, in like the New York Times, they still don't run stories that are 50-50. They'll just kind of allow that maybe it's a possibility. So that too, that's not because it's a Democrat or Republican thing. There's, there's a, there's a deeper bias in our media that cloaks certain issues, that cloaks the ability to discuss certain issues. And um, that's really what I want people to see. And that's that's what Red, White and Blind is all about. So what is that bias? Is it uh, corporate power? Is it, uh, you know, Christo-fascist right wing media empire? You know, Sinclair Network and Fox News and Rupert Murdoch and all that. Is it sensationalism, as you referred to earlier, just, hey, this is scary, that's scary, this is a threat, that's a threat? You know, what? what is the essence? Because I see lots of bias. I see, you know, bias like currents in a swirling uh, part of the ocean, right? There's bias running in many different directions. What are you specifically referring to? Yeah, so I get into it. Um, there's several kinds of bias, and I distinguish three kinds of bias in the book that I think are important to understand, because you're right. There's all kinds of stuff, and people use this word in all different ways. I also get into what disinformation, misinformation, fake news, what those labels refer to, what censorship is and what it isn't, and what propaganda is. So bias, there's three kinds of bias. The first kind of bias is innocent bias. Innocent bias is like uh, the bias you have because of 
what you do for a living, you know, where you grew up, your race, your class, your gender, national origin, mm. all of that kind of stuff. And that's, we all have it. We all bring, I'm going to look at issues a certain way because of where I live and who I am and how I grew up and all of that kind of stuff. Privilege, not privilege, all that kind of stuff is innocent bias. It's a real issue. It's a problem in a sense, like you don't want to balance. I, I talk a lot about a balanced media diet and we get into that. You don't want to have your entire media diet, all people with the same innocent bias. So that would be like all people that look one way or all people that come from the same place or have the same, you know, socioeconomic background or something. All people who like Twitter. Yeah, right. Whatever, whatever it is. All people that like peanut butter, you know, whatever it is. Um, so that's innocent bias and that's the thing we can get into. I think most people get that without having to discuss it too much. Um, the next one is systemic bias. And so systemic bias is the bias that comes from where you work when you, or, or what organization you're publishing your news through, right? So because we're at a place in history in the United States press where five giant corporations own basically all of the media that money can buy, which is like 95% of what you hear if you're not trying to find independent media, if you're not looking for, you know, podcasts that have fascinating people discussing interesting issues on them, um, you're going to be hearing things and reading things and seeing things that come through this, these giant corporations. And they have very intense bias of what is allowed to be spoken, talked about and what isn't, what perspective it should be talked about and what perspective it shouldn't be. So in systemic bias, I even get into five sub- separate filters of systemic bias. And this, this borrows on some of the work of Noam Chomsky and, um, in, in manufactured consent. There's the, the filter of, uh, advertisers, what they want or don't want in there. There's the filter of, um, elite sources. You don't question elite sources because you could jeopardize your access to them. Um, there's the, the dominant narrative filter. So if like there's a dominant narrative, like the war on terror or like the dangerous pandemic or, you know, whatever the dominant narrative is, you can't really go against the dominant narrative or it'll be filtered. So that's systemic bias. Very important and fascinating to understand. I spent a whole chapter or two on that. And then the third one is nefarious bias. And this is bias that comes through actual manipulation, deliberate manipulation of news. So systemic bias often isn't deliberate. It's like the journalist that happens to get promoted will be writing things that passes through the filters. They might not know that they're biased and censored or self-censoring, but they are. And the one that, you know, really wanted to write about, you know, the Iraq war from this perspective and then just didn't get promoted. And that's interesting. And then they ended up not in a job when there was like layoffs, right? Things like that happen. Yeah, that's systemic bias. Nefarious bias is like I spent a chapter on Operation Mockingbird, right? So, so that we knew, we know happened or is still happening. That's the CIA operation that came out, uh, in the 1970s with the church committee basically saying, you know, for 30 years, 25, 30 years, the CIA was, was placing either recruiting journalists or placing agents at major media institutions. Some of the most famous journalists were part of this program and they would disseminate propaganda. Basically they would, they would, they would bias what they were saying one direction or the other. They would put in, they would actually just, you know, drop in false narratives. And so that's the difference with nefarious bias is that there's always an ulterior, ulterior agenda and it's always done deliberately rather than non-deliberately. So, so then the question with nefarious bias is, is it still going on? Cause they say that they stopped doing operation mockingbird and I get into some of the CIA documents and it's almost certainly still going on. It's probably much, much more prevalent now than it was then. So, so those are the three kinds of bias and to understand that's where this stuff is happening. And so I tell a bunch of stories, Epstein, origin of the virus. Then we go into a bunch of other stories that sort of illustrate these different types of bias. So it's interesting. 
you know, framing these things, because I feel like, you know, as you were talking about nefarious bias and Operation Mockingbird, I, I don't know if it's still going on or not, or if it's just become um, obvious. You know, yeah. James Woolsey, former head of the CIA, is now a paid commentator on MSNBC, I believe. Right. So he's on MSNBC all the time on different shows, you know, the fucking David Petraeus and, you know, all these guys, former generals, former CIA, former FBI. They're openly paid commentators on networks. Isn't that like what they were doing, um, you know, uh, in a hidden sort of way 20 years ago? Now it's just out in the open. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And I, yeah, I mean, there's a study, I think it was done uh, by FAIR, Fairness, Accuracy and Reporting or something like that about build up to the Iraq war. And they basically looked at all of the sources that were on CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, CBS, PBS. And it was something like, I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, it's in the book, uh, but it was like of 250 sources that came on to sort of talk about whether we should, you know, what, what we should do in Iraq. There were like six that were against war. And of those appearances, it was like two were Dennis Kucinich. One was like, you know, some uh, Iranian or Iraqi professor, something that managed to, to squeeze on there. And then you had like, yeah, dozens of appearances by actual CIA, defense intelligence, all of these people. And that stuff goes on in, and is, is even more so. So, yeah, so I definitely talk about that. That's a part of it. But like you were saying, that's actually just overt now. They're not even hiding it. It's like, oh, let's hear from the CIA what they happen to think about this particular issue. Um, and that's important, but that's not exactly nefarious bias. I mean, the fact that that guy is placed there is actually systemic bias. I mean, that guy is, is just he's on MSNBC or CNN because he's going to say the right things around the right narrative. And there's no it's not hidden. Nefarious bias would be, you know, um, like I talk about the issue. There was a um, instance right before the 2020 election where um, there was supposedly being Russia was supposedly paying bounties to Afghans mm. to attack Americans. Right. And this story was reported in The New York Times with very shady sources like unnamed intelligence sources. Um, and then it was reported, repeated in The Washington Post. Turns out now it was totally false. That wasn't going on. There was not, and they, they walked it back, you know, six months later. Um, but that's an instance of nefarious bias because there's, you know, a story is just sort of place. This is how a narrative is, I say sort of how to bake a narrative. It's, it's often done like this where there's these sort of very vaguely sourced articles probably coming from some intelligence thing with an ulterior agenda. The agenda is not clear in the article. And then one one source reports it. And then Operation Mockingbird was called Mockingbird because of the idea that um, one source could sort of call out their song and then the other ones would hear and repeat, right? right? And so then suddenly you've got this whole thing. And it's a really great technique, I mean, a sort of cynical way because of two things. First of all, you don't need this sort of back channel shady conversation that could eventually get revealed that it's like, yeah, I'm going to write this on Tuesday, Washington Post right on Wednesday, LA Times on Thursday. You don't have to have that conversation because you, you, it's just the mockingbirds. The other thing is it really preys upon a part of human psychology that propaganda really depends on, which is this idea that if if you hear something once or maybe even twice, the brain's kind of like, yeah, I don't really think that's true. I don't know. 
But if you hear something seven, eight, nine times from different sources, the brain just sort of incorporates it like, oh, yeah, I guess that's what's going on. Right. So Operation Mockingbird, it's it's a really great technique. And that's that's certainly you can observe that in the media. So that's how a narrative it's 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 planted in the media through these sort of uh, sort of intelligence unsourced things. Then the Mockingbirds sing about it. Then we get into so then people start to believe it, even though it's probably not true. People start to get it. And then you have. Uh, different kinds of censorship, which is so there's there's um, the systemic censorship, which basically you can't go against that narrative. Then you have fact checking. So the fact checkers step in, the fact checkers will remove any anything counter to that. And then you have social media censorship and then social media censorship will also remove or shadow ban sources that go against it. And so that's where we're at. We're at this we're in a very sophisticated media environment right now. Um, which in some ways is is pretty dark. Like it looks pretty like, how are we going to ever get around this? They have all these really intense vehicles. And so what I write about in Red, White and Blind is there's a there's a very powerful countervailing force right now, which is very exciting. And we're in a, what, what I would call a new enlightenment, because what's going on is much like the invention of the movable type printing press in the 1400s that birthed the first enlightenment. I mean, it toppled power because it, it, it and that allowed people to read and to write and eventually to publish and to distribute ideas much, much more broadly that eventually toppled the power of the Catholic Church and the feudal system. The Internet is the same type of an invention. In fact, I would say it's probably even more. We'll have to look at it again in 100 years to see if it's going to be even more powerful than the printing press. But we're in like the second phase of the second quarter of a four quarter game here of what the enlight- what the Internet is bringing to humanity. And I think we're in the process of a new enlightenment. And so you see a very similar phenomenon where the existing distribution of information, the sort of arbiters of truth and and fiction, are their power is waning. And so just like the Catholic Church, when when you know people sort of say, I think maybe the Earth isn't the center of the galaxy. I, I don't, you know, there's a lot of science that's showing that that's not the case. You're on the rack. You're a heretic. You're a blasphemer. You. But then eventually that that type of suppression loses. And so we're in a, same, a similar phase, right, where you could see with some of the COVID narratives, you could see with like the thing about uh, Jeffrey Epstein, with all these different stories where the truth comes out in independent media and they try to silence it and they try to hush it and they try to you know do all these things. And they have a lot of sophisticated techniques. And it's, you know, it's it's a very interesting information war. But little by little, even they, the label today is conspiracy theorist or like. You know, all these kinds of negative terms that are used to say, don't do your own research, don't read, don't think for yourself, but people are doing it anyway. And so we're in this fabulous phase. And that's what really red, white and blind is about is we're all in a state of red, white and blind. All of us are deceived by this crazy media behemoth, but we have in our own hands the power to awaken. And and what I what I call media consciousness is this idea to start to look at not just what's being said. But who's saying it and why and what do they want us not to see? And what do they want me to feel? You know, when I read this article, when I read about, you know, the tundra is thawing and all these viruses are coming out, what do they want me to feel about that? You know, and why? Doesn't mean it's false. Doesn't mean it's true. It's just the media consciousness is to think about it and then maybe have another source and to balance our media diet. So um, sorry to go off on it, but that's that's sort of where I where I see it. Yeah. That's good. You you say the Internet and its unprecedented access to information is enabling universal human connection, which is true. Interesting. Revealing long hidden aspects of reality 
and dethroning entrenched arbiters of truth. This is a wild epoch taking us kicking and screaming into a brighter and more truthful future. Okay, interesting. Uh, but how is this any different from, you know, you say do your own research and, and there's the opportunity to awaken, there's the opportunity to overthrow the traditional arbiters of truth, and yet the zone is being flooded with bullshit, right? We've got flat earthers, we've got Alex Jones claiming that the Sandy Hook kids weren't really dead and their grieving parents are fucking actors. The the zone is flooded with so much bullshit. And maybe this is, I don't know, is this nefarious? Is this systemic? You know, I, I don't know what the the generating force behind this is necessarily, but it feels like wake up sounds easy. But when you've got unlimited sources of information, each one of which has questionable uh, validity, who's got the fucking time for this, right? One of the reasons we had the arbiters of truth is that they did the research, supposedly. They were supposed, you know, fucking Walter Cronkite wasn't going to lie to us, supposedly. Supposedly. Um, you know, and there were like limited but higher quality sources of information. And now it's unlimited lower quality sources of information. So how how the fuck are we supposed to wake up? Who's got time for this? Great question. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first thing to do, and this is basically what I say. So yeah, there's going to be two sort of uh, hobgoblins on our path. One is going to be this sense of like overwhelm. And one is going to be cynicism when we realize how bad the problem is, right? Um, and those are, those are serious issues to overcome. <clears throat> the first thing I say is that uh, media consciousness, which is what I say, say is, is the right path to get on to this path of media consciousness is um, not only by, by trying, by trying to attain some level of media consciousness, not only are you going to be able to decipher truth from fiction a little bit better, you're going to start to hone your own in uh, integrity versus bullshit detectors, right? You're gonna, there's all kinds of side benefits to this. So, so one benefit is that you'll be able to connect with more people. Um, a, a lot of times we end up, the media as it is, the media establishment as it is, is, is dividing people, is pushing us into these camps with the red camp and the blue camp and you, and, and with these two tribes and people are losing connection with their friends and family over this. And so that is, I've experienced it myself. You know, I think so many people I talk to have experienced this where they don't, I don't feel like my beliefs neatly map onto what the Democrats say or the Republicans say. I have maybe different views on, abortion or guns or the vaccines or like whatever controversial issue or, or, or whatever it is. Right. So by, by moving towards media consciousness, we can begin to connect with others because we'll understand those other viewpoints. Even if we don't necessarily agree with them, say, okay, that's another viewpoint. Another big advantage is <clears throat> we don't have any other option. There is no, I'm not going to inhale kind of option. Like you can't just sort of opt out this stuff that the, this media disinformation, the, the, um, dissem dissemination of propaganda and the censorship, it's been going on for a hundred years now. I mean, the birth of propaganda coincided with the birth of this idea of objective news, which, which doesn't exist. It's sort of a, a fiction that there could be objective news. We can get into that. Um, 
that that all that stuff came out of the 1920s. That was and that led to the phase where we are now, which is falling apart. But it's this consolidation of media ownership into five giant hands, which is essentially a ministry of truth. Right. And and there, it's so powerful. The management of the narratives is so sophisticated. We can't just choose to opt out. I mean, you can try to like put your plugs in and go about your life for a day or two, but eventually it still seeps in. You still absorb this is what a, the dangerous pandemic is, or this is what uh, happened on January 6th, or this is what happened on, you know, September 11th or whatever it is. There's so many things. And then even if you somehow manage to avoid that, it comes in through your friends and family, right? So we don't have and not inhale. This is the water we swim in. This this media environment, the narrative is not just, you know, did or did not some event happen. It's literally the story of our lives. It's what we what we are to hope for and what we are to fear. It's I believe that this deception that comes from the media is the most powerful type of deception that that affects us in our lives today. And so we have to address it one way or the other, right? I mean, we can stick our head in the sand or we can say, now maybe awaken is too big of a word, right? Media consciousness is the idea that little by little, we can begin to see not just what's being said, but who's saying it and why. And a balanced media diet allows us to begin to move towards this path of media consciousness. So balanced media diet is, I I come up with a book. I went through hundreds of sources. Here's 40 sources that I recommend um, I don't think everything that every one of them says is true. There is no, unfortunately, there's no Santa Claus. I can't tell you there's one source that always tells you the truth. I wish I could. And even if I did, it'd probably change. It'd be co-opted or something like that in 2023, right? So, but by going towards media consciousness and following a balanced media diet, um, and there's several levels. So if you you say, how do I have time for this? Um, there's one level where it's 30 minutes a day. Hopefully people can do that. Maybe they can't. There's another level that's in an hour a day. And there's like, if you really want to nerd out and become a media philosopher, there's two hours a day. But, you know, there's just more sources that you sort of look at each day. And the idea is, and I do say if, let's say it just feels overwhelming. And I've had people, because I'm following my media diet, I've talked to people that are doing it. And they're like, you know, it just it's just more than I can handle. Then what I say is then pick an issue or two. So rather than like, you know, if you're on the 30 minute plan, there's two sources each day and it changes each day of the week. And then you come back on Monday to the ones from last Monday. Instead of reading everything, just pick an issue that you really want to know about. Maybe it's the war in Ukraine or maybe it's, uh, you know, COVID something or it's whatever it is. And so then, then when you go through your balanced media diet sources, you just look at that issue because mm-hmm. the important thing is to be informed, but deeper than becoming informed is learning to understand narratives and learning to see, okay, this is how they're talking about this issue. Right. And so, yeah, that's that's what I say. Your question's a great one. That's exactly the right question. Yeah. Like, how do we deal with it? And how do we deal with the fact that, right, there's so much out there and this is the temptation towards censorship is, well, can't we just get rid of Alex Jones because he says some disgusting stuff? Or can't we just get rid of this person who says disgusting stuff? And this is where I, 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 I draw a line and I say, well, let's talk about what free speech is, what free speech really means. And Noam Chomsky is really eloquent on this. He says free speech is not supporting speech that you like or you agree with because, you know, Hitler and and Stalin love that kind of free speech. Everybody loves more and more speech that they agree with. Supporting free speech is supporting speech that you despise, that you are disgusted by. And that used to be be common knowledge. I mean, I I remember when I was a kid, I'm, I'm 60, so I'm talking about the 60s and the 70s. 
Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Every yeah. kid knew that phrase. Every kid said that phrase. You you insult somebody, you'd say that sticks and stones can break my bones, but fuck off. Yeah. Now, like, where'd that go? It's gone. Now, now. it's, I know it's like microaggressions. It's like sticks yeah. and stones can hurt my bones and microaggressions are going to get you kicked out of school. <laughs> I don't feel safe. So it's your problem. Yeah. Like, what? What yeah. are you talking about? Um, yeah. I mean, this is all, this is interesting. And I, I find this as a writer myself and also when I'm, I'm looking at other people's work, sometimes it's, it's like things are both profound and utterly obvious. Right. Like what, what you're talking about in this book is very important. It's timely. It's topical. It's crucial to a functioning democracy. And at the same time, it's totally obvious. Like, yeah, <laughs> how is this any different from critical thinking? How is this I, any was, different? I was writing the book. I was like, all the stuff, it writes itself. Like, I think I, I, this used to be just basic ideas. Of, <laughs> right. I realize now I'm a classical liberal. I thought I was a progressive. And, and I talk about progressivism and what that means. I think I'm just a liberal from like, you know, the early 20th century who believes that we shouldn't have censorship and believes in, you know, free speech and the Constitution, these things. Now it's like, I, I don't know where I am. I'm politically homeless. And I yeah. feel like my book just wrote itself. I don't feel like it's it's like rocket science. Um, but anyway, I interrupted you. Go ahead. You know, I, I lived in Spain for 20 years. And a lot of what you're talking about in terms of, you know, questioning your sources and developing your bullshit detectors and all that kind of stuff to circle back to the beginning of our conversation. I think a lot of that is honed by travel, right? Because what you're doing is you're saying, oh, all this stuff I thought was like accepted truth is actually a particular culture's way of framing reality. So it could be travel, it could be psychedelics, it could be meditation, it could be all sorts of things that shift your sort of your your point of view so that you see things from different angles, right? Um and whenever we talk about propaganda, two things come to mind. First of all, Edward Bernays, who I guess you're familiar with and his work in the twenties and him being Freud's nephew and you know, just like that whole axis of freak out. Um, but also in Spain, propaganda is what Spanish people call advertising. Mm -hmm. And that's just, I mean, it's not even a slang. It's like, oh, the propaganda for Coca-Cola, you know, is on the TV. It's like, I love that. When the first time I heard that, I thought, that's so cool. They know it's propaganda. <laughs> they know it's bullshit, right? It's like, yeah. instead of saying advertising, say bullshit, because that's what it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I love what you say. I, I think that's you, you did a great job there of like knitting together my history as a writer, which I maybe didn't know how to do. Yeah, there's an element to which a balanced media diet is like travel. Um, it, I love that. It's it's sort of the, this idea of like, yeah, we all have our viewpoint, and and we all think we're right. I mean, that's that's part of the nature of, of the, you know, the human brain, and we don't like to admit that we're wrong. And you know, it's easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled and that whole thing. But what if you travel, you know, and if you can't, maybe travel doesn't mean, you know, grab a suitcase and get on the plane and go to China. Maybe it means read the other side's news sources. Read Hang out with news. a Trump supporter. Yeah. Talk to a Trump supporter. Or if you're a Trump supporter, talk to a, you know, a CNN junkie, you know, yeah. like, and I, I, I've been on podcasts on both sides. And it's really interesting to talk to people on both sides. Yeah. I love that. Just be open-minded a little bit and, um, and, and travel helps. And if you can't, if you're not going to travel, uh, read broadly. 
you know, reading used to be considered a great thing. Now it's like, don't do your own research. Like, where did that happen? No, do your own research. Jesus, that's what we need to do. Read, learn, think. You might be wrong. You know, a lot of us are wrong. We'll all be wrong some of the time. I'm wrong some of the time. Um, but but talk about it. Think. That's what that's what gets us through. That's the foundation of science and democracy and these ideas that undergird Western civilization. We need to we need to hold those and defend those. If if science becomes just trust the experts or democracy becomes, you know, just vote for your party, we're back to the dark ages. That's that's what the priests wanted. Just trust that, us. We've that's got to one trust, of, trust us, you know? Yeah, yeah. That that's one of the supreme ironies of all this, right? Is the the sort of undercutting of scientific authority, particularly around COVID and big pharma and, and all that. Um, because what you're talking about is essentially applying the scientific method to your media consumption. That's right. Right. It's, it's don't go into it assuming you know what's right. Look at different things, compare them, run tests, have a control group, have objective observers and now you analyze the data. I mean, it's, it's undercutting the legitimacy of science, not necessarily specific scientists who are, um, motivated by professional ambition and money. And, you know, the, you know, there's all sorts of reasons that individual scientists and, and even scientific journals who that don't publish negative results. They only publish the stuff that works for their advertisers. I mean, it's been corrupted. There's no doubt about it, but the scientific method itself is, is the best thing we've got as far as distinguishing reality from not reality. Absolutely. And it's, it's literally, it is the underpinning of science and democracy. Democracy is the same. Like the idea that you let everybody in the room say their ideas. Everybody's got lots of ideas and you let the best ideas win and you don't censor anybody. If their ideas are bad, then somebody gets up there and says, those ideas are bad and here's why. And, and that's it. That's, that's the best thing we've got, right? You know, if, if we had, you know, if we knew this guy over here is, is divinely omniscient and has, you know, then yeah, sure. Let's have a, you know, let's have a, uh, what do they call it? The uh, benign monarchy, uh, mm. enlightened despotism, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be the best form of government. If we, if we knew we had an enlightened despot, let him or her or it run the show. Yeah. But we don't have that. And so we've got science and democracy, which is, which are crazy chaotic systems full of misinformation, full of bad actors. We're trying to, you know, make an omelet out of a bunch of rotten eggs or something like that. You know, but that's the best we've got. That's what we have to do is we have to figure out how do you come up with a system that takes self-interested people and comes out with a, you know, a relatively reasonable approximation of the truth. And that's what we've got to got to go with, because the alternative is so much worse. Do you know that research? And I may be misquoting this, or this could even be an urban legend, but I think it's true. I think I, I, I read this somewhere. Um, it's about, you know, you've got a big jar full of marbles, and you ask people to guess how many marbles are in the jar. And if you ask, you know, one or 10 or 20 people, they're wildly off. But when you get up to 500 or 1,000 guesses and you average them, they're incredibly accurate. Yeah. Yeah. It's called, um, I think it's just called crowdsourcing or there, there's maybe a more scientific name for that, but yeah. And that, I mean, when you apply that to democracy, it, cause I look around and I say people are idiots and they're uninformed. Um, 
But if you apply that, that marble research, it seems like maybe that's the best way to make a decision. I read somewhere that you were raised in an intentional community. Yeah. And I wonder how that may have affected your perspective on these matters. Um, you know, do you feel when you were a child, did you have a sense of being an outsider that reality wasn't necessarily what the, the, you know, Oh, I know what we were talking about when your power cut off is the, the wisdom of the crowd and the fact that if you have 500 people guess how many uh, jelly beans are in the bowl, you're going to get a pretty accurate estimation, which then makes me think like, even though most people are uninformed morons, democracy makes sense in some, some level. Um, uh, anyway, but I'm not sure how that uh, ties into what I'm asking you now, but just your, your, sort of understanding of the world, to what extent was that shaped by being raised in that community? And and what kind of community was it? Were you Amish or something? No, I mean, it's it was basically a hippie commune. Um, mm-hmm. I don't use those words because that conjures its own uh, vision, which also isn't exactly accurate. Yeah. My parents were, were hippies, but they were... Um, they were in this spiritual path. And so they went and spent time with this uh, spiritual teacher in England named John Bennett, who had studied with uh, Gurdjieff. I'm not sure if you're aware of the sure. Gurdjieff and yeah, the, the sort of first, first uh, experience of Eastern spirituality in Europe, basically. And so anyway, so John Bennett had said, okay, it's, and this is like my parents are in their twenties, like really young. Um, and uh, it's time to start a community in the United States. And so they found this land in West Virginia that was, <clears throat> excuse me, was donated by, this author, I think, I, I got to get the, the story straight on exactly how they were able to purchase this beautiful piece of land. I mean, it was like 450 acres, a Georgian mansion that had been like owned by Bushrod Washington, a nephew of George Washington, and this giant barn that they that all of the students that came to study with Bennett, like renovated this barn into this gorgeous uh, place that could host, you know, hundreds of people in these bedrooms and all this stuff. So yeah, I grew up there. Um, certainly that's, you know, when I talk about innocent bias, like I have some bias having grown up around, um, people that were on the spiritual path. It was not a lot of sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of hippie commune. I'm sure there was some sex and drugs going on, but it was no- nothing that the kids ever saw. It was much more of an experience of like, you walk into a room and you're surprised that there's like 17 adults silently meditating, you know, or something like that. And we, so the kids learned to be quiet and there was, you know, these gorgeous floors where people put a lot of work into these really beautiful floors because people would be sitting on the floor a lot. And so, mm. so yeah, and, and it was somewhat idyllic, you know, because the kids, we all just sort of ran around on the on the land, you know, playing soccer or going into the woods and picking flowers and stuff like that. Um, I'm sure that's that affected me. What I give it credit for actually is I think I have this optimism that um that a lot of people are surprised with like, why would you write a story about going to these like dark corners of like our media disinformation? And maybe that's part of the reason I wrote the book is I find myself, I'm able to, you know, when somebody says there's a haunted house, I kind of, I'm fine to just walk right in and like, see what's going on. Like I'm kind of curious and I, you know, and maybe I'm foolish in that way. I don't know. But um, so, yeah, so I have this sort of sense of this like uh deep belief in the goodness of people at the end of the day. And mm. maybe that comes from, Yeah. Interesting. Are your parents alive? My parents are alive. Yeah. Um, they did get divorced uh, a little while ago. Um, yeah, they're both doing their own thing. Um, they're both still 
meditating and, and on their spiritual path. I mean, I think one thing that's really interesting about growing up, the place was called Claymont. Um, it was in West Virginia. I think one thing that was really interesting that took me a long time to realize, and this is even, you know, halfway through writing Double Happiness is when I realized this, is that <clears throat> I think I, I think wherever we grow up, we sort of absorb, like I was talking about this in China, about absorbing this idea of this other happiness. We sort of absorb with the water, with the air, what the meaning of life is or, or what people are really doing here. And the narrative, the media narrative has a powerful role on this as well. And I think I absorbed on some level that what people are doing here is um, attaining to the best of their ability a refined state of consciousness. And everything else is just sort of superficial fluff. So it took me into my late 20s, maybe early 30s, to realize that that's actually not what most people are doing in American culture. I, I really still thought everybody is 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 moving towards their own spiritual path of, of this refined state of consciousness, all this other stuff about making money, trying to become famous or, you know, buy a fancy house or fancy car. That's just sort of the trimmings and trappings of the superficial life. But what we're all doing really is questing towards this refined state of consciousness. And I finally it dawned on me and I'm a little embarrassed to realize, to admit how late that no, no, like the majority of Americans, like that is what they're doing. That they really what they're what they're doing here is trying to get money and trying to get the fancy house, the fancy car, you know. And that that's their that that is their path. <clears throat> and it's only a small, very small percentage of people that are sort of that superficial, and they're really doing is is working towards a refined state of consciousness. And anyway, so I think that also, you know, maybe that undergirds to some extent my belief that something like red, white, and blind and the idea of media consciousness and the idea of um, a balanced media diet would appeal to people because maybe, maybe I misjudge human character. It's a, it's a possible flaw in my, in my work. Why did you write this book? What's your motivation personally? Well, so, I mean, it starts, let me just answer that question really straight first and then tell you the story. I mean, I, I see, the distortion, the deception in the media as the most potent form of deception that Americans are suffering from right now. And I see that Americans are suffering and I see that we're, we're bickering with each other. We're divided. Um, and it's being done through this deliberate deception and manipulation. And I want people to be happy. I want people to find what is true for them. I want people to live a good life. And if, you know, we're all going to go through our life making these powerful, important decisions. We're going to decide where to live, whether to have kids, whether to get married, whether to travel, whether to take a vaccine or, you know, get an abortion and these like controversial issues. But all of these things, whether we're going to, you know, buy a house or rent, whether we're going to, you know, drive a car or ride a bike, and we make all of these decisions and they're being driven in a large way, if we're not conscious, by this meet the media narratives that we live in, the, the water that we swim in. And these important decisions, I think we make them more wisely. And I think we'll live happier, better lives if we understand or if we can see through or at least realize that there's, that these narratives are, are manipulated for particular reasons that don't necessarily have your best interest at heart. So I think that's really the crux of why I wrote the book. Yeah. And I think that's really the only good reason to write a book, to alleviate unnecessary suffering. Anything else is ego. Hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, people have asked me why I wrote my books and that that's the answer I eventually came to. The only thing that can get me through that experience of delivering a 30 pound baby through my intellectual vagina is feeling like this is actually going to help people. Otherwise, I'm just doing it, what, for an advance and, you know, to get interviewed on some podcast? Like, who gives a shit? That's not enough of a reason. Uh, it's got to somehow help people. Yeah, and I would, I love that. And I would add one little twist to that, which is that I think double happiness was also, I'd have to think about the percentage. I think it was maybe 60 or 70% for that. Like I want people to understand this other happiness because we're going through our lives wanting what other people think we're supposed to want. And you have within you the ability to know what you actually want and to go for that. And then also to experience this happiness of what already is. But there was another part of double happiness that I wrote to process my own experience. There was an element of which I needed to understand what had happened to me. Right. And so with red, white and blind, I've seen that there's I have to be honest, there's a little bit of that. It's much less with red, white and blind. It's probably more like five percent of the book. But I did go through censorship. I mean, I was writing about Bernie Sanders in 2016 and my I was censored and kicked off and sacked by Huffington Post and never wrote for them again. That really happened. And I really experienced that. And I know a lot of other people have as well. And so I wanted to. I needed to understand why that had happened and what was the forces behind that. So there was a personal element of it as well. Um, but yeah, I don't think I, it wouldn't have carried me through the grueling hours of editing and revising and like what you've do- done as well with your books and, and having to think through all this and do all of that work. If it wasn't a deep part of my own, what I see as my mission as a human being on earth. And, and that is to, figure things out to the best of my ability and share it with others so that it might help them live lives, live life a little bit better. I think that's what I'm doing here. I read a a quote recently that writers are beggars telling other beggars where they found some bread. Yeah, that's right. It's like, that's what it comes down to. It's like, Hey, I found some happiness over there or I found some insight over there. Or here's an idea that made me feel less shame or guilt or despair. I hope it, yeah. I hope it works for you too. That's Tony, great. thank you. This, this has been great. I'd like, I'd prefer to have done it in your orchard, but, uh, despite the technological interventions, I, I think, uh, this was well worth uh, my time anyway. I'm, and I'm sure the audience is. So thank you. I will release this in January when your book is available. It's called Red, White, and Blind, and uh, also Double Happiness, if you want to read about Tony's adventures in China. Chris, it's been wonderful. And uh, yeah, next time up here at Sebastopol at the Orchard, we'll, uh, we'll do it. All right. My name is Carsey Blanton. I am an old friend of Chris Ryan's, and I'm excited to play you my song, Smoke Alarm. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. And what's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. 
Into the ground. 